you have made Whatever comes I won't complain For all my hope Is in your name And now your joy Awaits my praise Here it comes I give thanks For all you have done And I will sing Faithfulness, my solid rock. Come on, church. I give thanks for all you have done, and I will sing of your mercy and your love. Your love is unfailing, Lord. I am grateful. I give thanks for all you have done. I won't forget. Love 
Thank you. 
church good it's good to see you it's good to be with you this morning for those of you i haven't yet had the privilege of getting to meet my name is andrew Irwin, and it's an honor for me to be one of the pastors here at the vine church and i don't say that word honor lightly it truly is an honor for me to be a small part of the incredible things that god is doing in and through the vine church in fact i would tell you that it's been one of the professional honors of my life to get to be a part of what god is doing here at the Vine Church. And I think that's partially because I've actually been tracking the Vine from afar for a long time. In fact, my wife and I had the privilege of being a part of one of the preview services before the, the Vine launched 12 years ago. And then I got to be a part of one of the very first worship experiences over at the Heather Wayne's Dance Academy in the Black Box Room. And my wife and I sat through, through that worship service and we were just in awe of what God was doing. And then we got in our car after the service and we got to do that thing that parents get to do before they have kids where they talk to each other. You know what I'm saying? We got in the car and we talked to each other and we just said, man, God is up to something incredible at the Vine Church. We never knew we'd get to be a part of it, but we knew there was something special there. And we know part of it's because this church has an incredible leader. And I don't say that because I have a, an evaluation coming up. <laughs> I don't say that because Pastor David has some blackmail material on me. I say it because I've actually had the privilege of being mentored by some of the best and brightest that our denomination has to offer. I've studied alongside some of the best communicators in the world. I've been honored to study under some of the best strategic minds in church world today. And I've been mentored by people who just have a deep, passionate heart for people. And what we say all the time around here is, well, more is caught than taught, and I caught a lot. It was those mentors who helped mold and shape me into who I am today. And as I think about all the different mentors I've had, Pastor David's at the top of the list for me, not because he's an incredible communicator, although he is, and not because he's an extraordinarily gifted strategic thinker and a visionary leader, although those are all true of him. The reason he's at the top of the list for me it's because in every season and every stage of life for him, he's had one aim, and that was to follow Jesus as closely as he possibly can and to bring everybody else along on that journey of following Jesus. Now, listen, I've been in, I've been in an accountability group with Pastor David for nearly 10 years. He ain't perfect, okay? I just want to put that out there. If you want some blackmail material on him, just talk to me after the service, and I will hook you up. But what I will say for Pastor David is that in an era where it seems to be a cultural norm for everybody to make much of themselves, even at the expense of others. And in an era where it seems to be normal and natural for you to collect as many followers as you possibly can, 
Pastor David has remained steadfast in his desire to point people not to himself, but to point people to Jesus. And that's an incredible blessing. In fact, I'm convinced that we in our day and age today, we need more people with that same heartbeat where it's not about making much of us, it's about making much of Jesus. And I think in our culture today where ultimately what people are looking for is fame for themselves, we need people who want to make Jesus famous. And I think students, I think ultimately you guys have probably the more uh, more pressure on you in regards to this than any other generation to come before you. You're digital natives. You've always had social media. And what social media does is it gives you stats on your popularity. You actually know at any given moment how popular you are based on how many followers you have, how many likes you get, how many retweets you get. And I wish I could say that this was an issue that stopped when you were a student, but adults know that's not true. This idea of making much of us carries on into adulthood, and we look at other people, and we ask the question, why is it that they have a bigger house than I do? Why is it that they drive a nicer car than me? How is it that they have a better title or are higher up on the org chart than I am? And all of those questions are about making us famous, not making Jesus famous famous. But I think that the group of people that probably has this worse than anybody else are parents. Listen, when my three-year-old is having a complete meltdown in the grocery store, you know what I don't need from any of you? For you to come up to me and say, oh man, that looks like you're really struggling. I wouldn't know my child's a self-soother. I don't want to hear about your self-soothing child. When my child's in a puddle on the floor. And listen, listen, if you're around a parent whose child didn't make the grade, didn't make the team, or didn't even make the bus, what they don't need to hear from you is how you can't relate to their problems because your child is a popular prodigy. It's not helpful, and it's making much of you at the expense of them. And I feel like our culture has become rampant with this idea. And I think that there's a way for us to begin fighting back against this, to, to break this down a little bit. And I think it's found in this idea of mentoring, which we're going to see in our scripture passage for today. So if you brought your Bible, have a Bible app handy, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. And if you brought your paper Bible and you're trying to find it, 2 Timothy is located right after 1 Timothy. Just want to put that out there for you. If you hit Titus, you've gone too far, all right? And as you're finding 2 Timothy, I just want to give you a little context. We say this is a book of the Bible. It's actually a letter. It's a letter written from a veteran pastor to a rookie pastor. Um, This older pastor's name is Paul. The younger pastor's name is Timothy. And the story of their relationship is fascinating. You can actually see it chronicled in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul, who has been called by God to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, is traveling through what would be modern-day Turkey, specifically the city of Lystra. And as he's going there, he gets word of this, this young man with a great reputation in the community. And he finds out that this man was raised by his mom, who happened to be Jewish, and his father, who happened to be a Greek. And Paul gets the opportunity to interact with Timothy, and apparently they hit it off because there was a tremendous amount of trust that was established quickly in their relationship. And we know that because Paul immediately invites Timothy on his missionary travels with him. Not like the next journey, like this journey, like leave everything behind and join me on the trip right now. Now, and that would have taken a lot of trust for Paul to make that kind of offer to anyone 
I mean, he's doing the Lord's work. He's bringing the kingdom here. And he invites Timothy to be a part of it. But as much trust as Paul had to have to extend that offer, it would have taken way more trust in my mind for Timothy to accept it. Uh, Think about it. Could you imagine somebody you just met who just just rolled into town inviting you to go travel with them? I mean, he's talking about leaving everything behind for a new way of life uh, in which you are assured of being persecuted. I mean, that would be a lot of faith and a lot of trust. And not to mention the fact that in order for you to accept Paul's offer, you actually had to be circumcised. I mean, we're talking about leaving everything behind and having surgery and then hitting the road. This is a big ask. I mean, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to come with me, but you can't come if you're not circumcised because then we won't be, be allowed to preach in the synagogues. And I can't have that. So I want you to have this little procedure. It was outpatient, no big deal. And then <laughs> we'll go, we'll go, right? It'll be, it'll be good. And remarkably, Timothy accepts. And that same level of trust that he showed at their very first encounter carries out throughout their relationship together as we'll see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Essentially what we have here is Paul looks at Timothy and says, well done. You have not fought for the expectations of culture. No, instead you have fought for the expectations of Christ. And the way that you have done that, the way you have said, I'm not going to give in to what the world says is okay. I'm going to do what God says is okay, is you followed my example. He says in verse 10 specifically, you followed my lead in my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. And that would have been easier said than done because following Paul assured you that you were going to head face first into an area where you were going to be persecuted. In fact, Paul himself, he had a rough life. He was in and out of jail. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. I mean, it was always something with Paul. He was always around where the action was, and he always seemed to be on the brunt end of it. In fact, Paul himself says in verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, but will be. This is coming. This is what it looks like to follow me. And you know why Paul says that? Because Paul's aim isn't for Timothy to be his disciple. It's for Timothy to be Jesus's disciple. And Jesus tells us so clearly in Luke 9, 23, what discipleship looks like. He tells us that if you're going to be his faithful disciple, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to pick up your cross daily and follow him. You know what that means? That means dying to yourself 
so that you can live for him. It means that your wants are now second to his wants. Your goals, your aims, your ambitions are all second to his goals, his aims, and his ambitions. Your life purpose is now his life purpose. And we actually know from Luke 19.10 what Jesus's purpose was. It was to seek and save the lost. And that's what our purpose is if we're going to follow And that means that we've got to be willing to follow that purpose, even if there's going to be persecution. Now, to seek and save the lost, that's that's a big deal. I've got a newsflash for you. There's a lot of lost. Some of you, some of you see lost in your schools. Some of you see lost in your workplaces. Some of you live with lost. We live in a culture where there is lost all around us. And it's our responsibility to seek that lost out and show them the light and the love of Christ. That is our holy and explicit calling. That's what it looks like for us to be about the work and the the process of following Jesus. Now, the good news for us is that seeking and saving the lost is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. It's something that we're all in together. It's all of our, collectively, our collective calling. And the good news for us here at the Vine is we understand that making disciples, making disciples is our mission, but we know that can be big. It can be daunting. And so we've made it a little bit more manageable with our mantra, which is reaching one till we reach everyone. That's what we're about. And I love that the one person who could have lived out that purpose and could have lived out that mantra on his own was Jesus. And he chose not to. Jesus could have done this all by himself, but instead, you know what he did? He decided he was going to pull together 12 teenage bros so that he could invest in them so that they could understand his purpose, his mission, and his plan for the world. If you've ever wondered why it is that Jesus seems so patient throughout the gospels, it's because he hung out with teenage boys and that's the only way you survive is being patient, right? If you're not patient, you don't make it with teenage dudes. But Jesus oozes this patience because he oozes passion for those men. See, Jesus on purpose decided to mentor teenagers In fact, I believe that when Paul mentored Timothy, he was really just taking a page from Jesus's book. He looked for somebody he could invest himself into and give his life away to, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the mission of God, of making disciples, making disciples. Now, I'm actually convinced that this idea of mentoring is, is kind of enmeshed in the fabric of DNA, of the church, and of Christianity. I just think a lot of times we don't look for it because mentoring often takes a back burner. For instance, my guess is most of you here are probably not all that familiar with a man by the name of Benjamin Elijah Mays. This is, this is Benjamin here. He passed away a few years ago, but he lived a remarkable life. He was known both in the academic world and the church world. He was an incredible teacher and preacher. He was an author and a speaker. He was an activist. But I think that his most influential role that he ever played was that of mentor. You see, while he was working on campus one day, he was introduced to a young man 
And those two had kindred spirits. And Dr. Mays decided to invest in that young man. And they started meeting together on a consistent basis. And Dr. Mays shared his heart and the truth that he had within him, that all people were created in the image and likeness of God. And that meant that all people were worthy of dignity. And that message, it resonated deeply with that student who he began mentoring. And that student would go on to echo that message all around the world. That student's name was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And you know what Dr. King wrote about Dr. Mays? He said that Dr. Mays was my spiritual mentor and an intellectual father to me. But you know what I would say Dr. Mays was to Dr. King? I'd say he was simply being a Paul. Because I'm convinced that regardless of the season or stage of life that you find yourself in today, that we all need a Paul. We all need a Paul. Someone who will not just say to us what it is we're called to do, but actually show us what it is we're called to do. I remember when I first started going to church, I started going to church as a high schooler, which I don't recommend, okay? I don't recommend it because you get there and everything's weird, okay? My very first Sunday, they were celebrating communion and the pastor got up there and talked to me about how he wanted me to eat some dude's body and drink some other dude's blood. It was a mess for me theologically that took years to sort out. I'm not sure I've still got my mind totally around it quite yet. But I remember when I was first starting out, I went to a Bible study and the, past, and the youth pastor there said, hey, we're gonna be studying 1 Thessalonians. I thought he meant first theologians, like the very first theologians. And I was all prepared for that. And that's not what it was at all. And then he said, we're gonna move on to Galatians, which I thought was Genesis. And I was all prepped for that. I'd like studied Genesis. It was, it was a mess for me. And I remember one day I had to actually go to the youth pastor and just sit down with him and say, listen, I don't know how to tell people about Jesus. I feel called to tell them. I want to tell them. I don't know how to tell people about Jesus. And in that conversation, my youth pastor moved from being youth pastor to being Paul. He became my very first Paul because he didn't just simply tell me how to share the gospel. He showed me how to share the gospel. We began meeting together on a consistent basis. We did our best mentoring work in the place where all great mentoring happens, Waffle House. And we would go there and over hash browns that were scattered, smothered, and chunked because that's how God likes them, we would sit and we would converse together about what it looked like to share the gospel. And then he would actually model it for me. Because if you're looking for people to practice sharing the gospel on, go to Waffle House. I'm telling you, you will find somebody there who could use a good word from the good book. But what I learned from that relationship was that a Paul in somebody's life has the potential to change everything. Because it was under my first Paul's leadership that I committed my life to Christ. And I was baptized. And I felt my call into ministry. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my very first Paul taking an interest in me, not just telling me what to do and letting me go flounder on my own, but taking the time to invest in me and show me what it looked like to practically follow Jesus. And I am convinced that we need more Pauls in the world today because I'm convinced that each and every one of us, regardless of our season of life, could use a Paul Some of you might be going, well, okay, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. What would it look like for me to have a Paul in my life? How how do I go about having a Paul? 
It's really simple. I've got a two-step equation for you. First, you identify someone who you would love to learn from who's a little bit further in life than you are. You just find someone who's a little bit further along who you would love to learn from. And by the way, that's solid advice, not just for the realm of faith. That's solid advice for pretty much anything. Like if you want to get um, fit, A, look at me, don't talk to me, right? I mean, this is not what you're looking for. Talk to somebody who is fit, who's further ahead of you, and they can show you what it looks like to live a fit lifestyle. If you want to get better financially, find somebody who's a little bit further ahead of you and ask them what it looks like to get better financially. The same is true of faith. If you want to grow in your faith, look for somebody just a little bit ahead and ask them, ask them to show you what it looks like to get a little further ahead. See, once you've identified that person, then you just invite them. You invite them to invest in your life. Invite them to be there for you. And you can make this as formal or as casual as you want. It could be as formal as saying, hey, I'd love it for us just to read a book together and get together and talk about it on a consistent basis. Or it can be as like simple as saying, hey, I just need somebody to grab coffee with every now and again. Would you be willing to just sit down and talk with me? So can I bounce things off of you? Can I ask you questions? And when you identify and invite the right person into your life, it unlocks so much potential and power from within you. It calls out something from you. That's why I'm convinced that we all need to have a Paul. But we don't stop there. Not only are we all called to have a Paul, we're all called to be a Paul. And this is typically the part of the message where I get people who like give me like the pastoral stiff arm. And you don't do it like by putting your arm out. You do it by doing this. Mm-hmm. Right? You stop looking at me because you're like, mm, he's, he's preaching at somebody else, not me. Right? Listen, if the Lord has done something in your life, then you're called to do something in someone else's life. And some people go, oh, I'm too young, I'm too young. Listen, you're not too young. In fact, for you to say, I'm too young, flies in the face of Scripture. We're talking about Timothy, who Paul told him to not let anyone look down on him because he was young. And if you're going, well, it's not that I'm young. It's just that I don't have much to offer. I don't buy that. You were created in the image and likeness of God Almighty. To say you don't have anything to offer is to spit in the face of your maker. You absolutely have something to offer. He created you with something to offer to someone else. The problem is we think, well, we don't have enough to offer. We, we can't fill someone else up. Listen, listen. Your job is not to fill someone else's cup. It's to empty yours. And if when you empty your cup, it doesn't fill theirs, you just pray that the Lord fills it. It's not your job to fill anyone else up. It's his. And what you'll discover is that when you start emptying yours, he'll fill yours more and more. You'll have a cup that's overflowing as you go to pour it into the lives of other people. He wants this for you. And some of you might be going, well, what are some like practical ways that I can, I can be a Paul? When you become a Paul, you, you do three things. First, you challenge people. You challenge people. And you know why you challenge people? Because people have this innate desire to stay in their comfort zone. We want to just stay right where we are, where we got things figured out and things are rolling along nicely. The problem is we don't grow in our comfort zones. And if you're not growing, you don't have much to give. You got to grow 
so that you have something to give to those around you. And a good, a good Paul, they'll ask you questions that help you see the boundaries of your comfort zone, and then they'll just push you right out of it. And when, when they push you out of your comfort zone, you know what they do next? They've challenged you, and then they cheer for you. They cheer for you as you take those bold and courageous steps outside of your comfort zone. They're in your corner. They're there to build you up, not break you down. They're there when things are good to celebrate with you. And they're there when things are bad to just encourage you and wrap their arms around you and give you that hug that you need or that pat on the back to say, it's all right, I'm here too. They cheer you on. And some of you might be going, well, what if there's not much to cheer there? Listen, if, there, if there's not much to cheer in that person, you cheer Christ who is in that person for whom there is always reason to cheer. And the third thing you do after you've challenged and you've cheered for him is you coach him up. You coach him up. You give him the practicals of how you got to where you are because the reason you're in that relationship is you're further along than they are. So you just give them the practicals of how you got there. Well, what are those principles that you put in place? What are those things that you do again and again to help you advance in your faith journey? And then you just kind of you keep them out of the pit, right? Like those landmines that, that you hit, when you see them about to step on one, you shove them aside. Don't let somebody fall on the same landmines that got you. Let them find their own, right? Life's more fun that way. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't let them fall on their own either. It's okay. What I'm saying is you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to challenge and to cheer and to coach people into being better versions of themselves, which is better for everyone. Now, my guess is you're going, okay, I get, you're, you're fired up about mentoring, Pastor. I'm, I'm with you. But I'm not sure that this is going to make that big a difference. I'm not even sure that this is that big a deal in Scripture. It seemed to be a pretty big deal to Paul, and it seemed to be a pretty big deal to Jesus, and it seemed to be a pretty big deal to Moses. This really mattered to Moses. If you're familiar with the story of Exodus and, and kind of God working through Moses to lead the people out of slavery and captivity in Egypt onto the brink of the promised land, then you're familiar with Moses, who was an incredible leader. And Moses did some remarkable things to get the people out of Egypt to the brink of the promised land. But if you read through the pages of scripture, and this is, this is such a good story, you should read it. These are the stories you should be telling your kids because they're remarkable. But those things that Moses did, you know what you'll see when you look at him a second time? He very seldom did them alone. There was almost always someone else around when he was making the hard decision or when he was doing the miraculous thing. And oftentimes that person who was right there by his side was his assistant named Joshua which is why it's not that surprising that when Moses died just outside the promised land, that his succession from Moses to Joshua went so smoothly and that Joshua was able to take the mantle of leadership and lead the people into the promised land. But here's where things get interesting. This idea of mentoring really mattered to Moses, but it didn't seem to matter that much to Joshua. You know what the Joshua problem is? The Joshua problem is that Joshua didn't have a Joshua. Moses poured into Joshua. Joshua didn't pour into anyone. And so we had a smooth succession from Moses to Joshua. You know what the succession from Joshua afterwards looked like? It's the book of Judges, which could probably be best summed up with this phrase. And there was no leader in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. 
mentoring matters. And it's not just a biblical concept that has no relevance for our life today. You know how I know that? I'm Andrew, and I'm a millennial. Please don't throw anything. Listen, I fully recognize that I am a part of the most entitled generation to ever walk the face of the planet. That's me and my people. That's who we are. And I fully take the blame for it. I fully take the blame. Millennials should know better. We, we deserve all of, all of the punching bag comments that we get. But listen, while I will say this is our fault, it's not only our fault. Could you imagine a millennial generation that had the courage and the fortitude of the greatest generation? Could you imagine a millennial, a millennium generation, these millennials that are just known for being slackered, entitled punks? What if they had the heart and soul of the boomers? What if they had the wisdom and creativity of the Gen Xers? I think that they would look very, very differently. And you know where this bothers me the most? This bothers me because the millennials are biblically illiterate. We don't know the word of God. And you know why we don't know the word of God? Because it wasn't taught to us. And that in and of itself, when it happens to a person, is a tragedy. It's a tragedy when one person grows up believing that, that they're on their own, there's nobody who wants to invest in them, and they don't know the word of God. That's a tragedy. When it happens to an entire generation, it's a catastrophe. I don't know how you felt when you saw the news this week that there was another school shooting. I don't know the thoughts that went through your mind. I don't know the feelings that, that were in you. I know what I felt like. I felt like I had just been suckered punched again. And as I was praying for all the families of everyone involved in that tragedy at Santa Fe High School, I found myself just wondering how things would be different if all of the young people in our country had a Paul. How would things look differently if all the young people and all the millennials had somebody investing in them? If somebody had identified them and said, you've got potential and invested in them to bring forth the best of them instead of allowing the worst of them to go through life on display for all the world to see. It breaks my heart to think that there's a generation of people who don't know, who don't know how valuable they are because nobody's ever taken the time to tell them. Who don't know how incredible they are because nobody has ever cultivated the best of them before. And who don't know that they're not alone because nobody's ever stood by them before. Listen. We've had 22 school shootings in 2018 to the point where it's become white noise. This is a culture that is not of the kingdom. 
A kingdom culture is filled with one generation passing on their wisdom to the next generation. And that means that we as the church, as the body of Christ, have a responsibility to recognize that we are not only, it's not a suggestion, we are called to be Pauls to the next generation. And we're not gonna know how to be a Paul if we don't have a Paul. And so your assignment, your homework, your challenge this week is simple. It's to ask yourself this question, who is my Paul? Who is my Paul? And if you, when you ask yourself that question, if nobody instantly comes to your mind, it probably means you don't have somebody investing in you. And that needs to change now. And you know how you do that? You identify somebody who's further ahead and you invite them to invest in you. And if you're going, oh, no, I've got it. I've got a Paul. Well, the next question is, are you being a Paul? Are you being a Paul? Is there somebody who you're investing in? And if not, this week, it's time for you to identify who that person is and start investing in them. Because God wants to change our world one till everyone. And he wants us to pass on generational wisdom from one generation to the next. And the generational wisdom that I hope that you'll pass down is that you are loved. You are not alone. And that you have the potential to change this world forever for the better. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Let's lift our hearts. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe 
Come Holy Spirit, bring revelation 